Welcome to our brand new sermon series, The Jesus Lifestyle. What this series is all about is how do I live out the life of Jesus in this world? Last series, we talked about who is Jesus, coming to grips with he's more than a man, he's the son of God. Well, what difference does that make that he's in our life? How does he change us? When we talk about Jesus' lifestyle, this isn't about us trying to live like Jesus, because if you try to do that in your own strength, you're gonna fail miserably, it just can't be done. What this is, however, is letting Jesus live his life in us, because as believers, the Bible tells us when we accept Christ that his Holy Spirit actually becomes resident in our lives. So how do we let him use our gifts, talents, abilities, personality, experience, to continue his mission and his message and his ministry here on this earth. So it's just letting him kind of bleed through our lives. And when we do that, we actually experience his power at work in us. That's why Luke 9, Jesus said in verse 23, you know, don't go spending your time chasing after what the world has and trying to accommodate yourself to the world because you'll lose yourself. Instead, he says, forget about the world. You know, do what you have to do to get by, but trust in me and you'll really find yourself. Well, I want to give you a little picture of what it means to trust. And I want, to, I want you to keep this image in your mind and kind of use it each day to ask yourself, you know, am I trusting God? What does it mean to trust him? So when I was a boy and I was learning how to swim, uh, one of the things that they tried to get me to do was learn how to float on my back. Remember that? That was the hardest thing for me to do. I had to practice and practice and practice before I was able to do it. And the reason why is it didn't make sense to me. You're asking me to float on top of liquid. I'm going to sink. You're asking me to trust that which could drown me. And I resembled this little girl in the picture here. Look at that face. Now, does that face portray trust? That's an anxious face. That's like, Dad, don't you dare drop me. I don't want to drown. They tell you that the secret to being able to float in the water is to relax, is to kind of give yourself, displace yourself on that water and not, you know, stiffen up. So what happened to me is I got on the water and I stiffened up. I got anxious as I felt it running into my ears and getting close to my mouth. And the minute I did that, you know, I started to sink. But when you finally learn how to float, then you look like this kid. He's just kind of lounging. We're having a great time. It looks fun, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, this is, this is not Minnesota in the winter, but uh, it is Minnesota in the summer. And he's just, he's relaxing. He's enjoying the water. He's, you know, he's just letting the water carry him and keep him floating. If I were to ask you which picture resembles your relationship with Christ in terms of trust, would you say it's the anxious face? Or would you say, no, it's that calm, trusting kind of face? And that's just something we have to practice in our lives, to get to that place where we trust him. When we get to that place, when we practice that every day, pretty soon what happens is we begin to float, so to speak. We begin to experience his life living in us. Now, what's the evidence of Christ's life living in us? There's a lot of things we're going to be looking at, the lifestyle of Jesus these next several weeks. But one of the evidence is that we then end up having this, this desire to go. If Christ is really living in me, controlling me, then I'm going to be like Jesus because he's in me. And Jesus was always going. 
He was always going to people to tell them about God's love, about God's grace, about God's mercy, and about God's forgiveness. So the question is, are we on the go? Both individually and also as a church. Because God calls us to, to go together as well and change the world around us. So turn to Luke chapter 10 as we get started on this lifestyle. Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. And while you're doing that, let me welcome all of you who are joining us online as well. Thank you for being with us today. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, in chapter 9, verse 1, we discover that he had already sent the 12, and they had come back. Now he's, seven, now he's sending 72 more. They go to preach the truth. They go to cast demons out. They go to heal people. So the 72 go out. In verse 2, he says to them, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there's many out there to be reached, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, the last part of that is a little troubling, and we'll get to that. But the part I want you to capture right now is that we are to be on mission. We are to be going. And not just to Guatemala and Spain and India and places like that, which are very important, but right out our house, right in our neighborhoods, right at work, right at the gym, right at school. There's so many that, that need to hear about God's grace and about God's love. But here's, here's a challenge. When you go, not everybody is welcoming. In fact, there's opposition. In fact, there are people who say that you shouldn't go. I mean, Jesus went. He came here. He was rejected by many. The early church, they went out, and they suffered persecution and arrest, beatings and death. To this very day, there are people in the world who are arrested for going, who are, who are beaten, who are killed for going. Even in our culture sometimes, we experience some pushback and some hostility, verbally or otherwise, for going and being serious. I remember years ago having dinner with a, a friend of mine. He's a professor at the Beersheba University in Israel, and he's a great guy. Marsha and I uh, really care about him. And uh, we were having dinner, and we were talking about our faith, his Judaism, our mind, Christianity. And he stopped in the middle of the dinner, and he looked at me, and he said, why is it you Christians feel like you have to tell everybody about your faith? I mean, look at us, he said. We keep it in the family. Why can't you just keep it in the family? What is it that compels you to go? I mean, do you like the trouble that comes with that? Can't say I necessarily do. <laughs> but why do we go? when the culture sometimes seems to be saying to us, keep out, keep the message to yourself. Well, we go because we have a cure. So what do you mean by that? Imagine tomorrow you discover the cure for cancer. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? What would you do with it? Would you keep it a secret? Would you write it down and lock it away someplace? Of course not. You would go right away. You would call the medical profession. You would call scientists. It would be announced on CNN and everything else. The cure for cancer has been found. Would you sell it? <laughs> or would you just give it away? You and I have something, listen to this, 
more important than the cure to cancer. We have the cure to death. And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death, which is far worse than physical death. We have the cure for the soul. We have the cure for eternal life. So why would we keep it to ourselves? We will risk it, knowing there are some people who will reject it. We will risk it to make it known. We will risk it to make it known. Because it's so important. It can change hearts and lives. Well, what is this message that we go out to make known? By the way, how many of you ever heard of a fast food restaurant called In-N-Out? It's out west. Oh, look at all of you, right? It's good stuff, isn't it? I think it is anyway, all right? But I like the name of the restaurant because you go in, you get your food, and you go back out. A church should be like an in-and-out experience. You know, the disciples came in, Jesus fed them, sent them out. They came in, he fed them, he sent them out. The church, our gathering, not the building, but our gathering together, you know, we come in to be fed by God's word. We come in to worship God. We come in to minister and to care for each other so we can go back out to our everyday life to live out the lifestyle of Jesus, to bring this important message of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. We call this message the gospel. Well, what is the gospel exactly? Let me uh, quote to you from a couple scholars, and I'm going to give you my very simple definition. Tim Keller, in his book, The King and the Cross, writes, a gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that has been done for you, that changes your status forever. It is not good advice. <laughs> it is good news. And T. Wright, the New Testament scholar says, the gospel is the royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. When this gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. Dale Hummel's very simple version. The gospel is the good news that God loves you and he's proven it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died your death on the cross, absorbed your guilt, your shame, your condemnation on himself in order to offer forgiveness. He was buried on the third day. He rose again to prove he was victorious. Now, anybody who puts their faith in him, who repents of their sins and accepts them into their life, makes them the CEO of their life, so to speak, receives his Holy Spirit in them to go on mission with God till he calls us home. And someday when we get home, we'll be in a place where there's no more rejection, no more tear, no more sorrow, no more death. That's good news, don't you think? That's great news, isn't it? It is great, great news. So why? Why would anybody reject it? Why would anybody say no to it? Why would they be turned away from God's good news? Is it because the world's addicted to bad news? Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? When you watch TV, bad news sells. Bad news makes a story. Fake news makes a story these days. We're talking about the good news, the true news. The reason why people have a hard time with the good news and reject it is because of their concept of God. See, a lot of people have no problem with God in the culture. Unless you're an atheist, of course. 
Why do people just don't have any problem with God? Because in the culture's mind, and I think sometimes even in Christian's mind, God seems transcendent and very far away, doesn't he? And if God is far away, and if God is transcendent, way out there someplace, then it's, then it's almost like I really can't know him. And it's kind of left up to me to figure out how to connect with him. And that's what religion is. Religion is man's search for God. So I try to come up with some way to connect to God. And I start coming up with my ideas, my philosophies. The other day, I was in traffic, and I saw, you know, one of those bumper stickers, maybe you've seen it as well, coexist, all the symbols of the different religions. And it's just the idea that, you know, can't we just all coexist? Can't we just all, we all want to get there. I mean, there's a few that want to get there, but we all kind of want to get there. Can we just accept our different ways of getting there? What people have a hard time with is Jesus. Because Jesus puts God right in front of me. And makes God really personal. And Jesus looks at us and he says, I have come to put an end to religion. I've come to put an end to all these ideas about my father. I'm here to tell you, I have come to establish a relationship between you and my father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but through me. I want you to put all your trust, all your way in me. And the culture just freaks out about that. We struggle with it sometimes too because it seems so narrow. And guess what? It is. It's very narrow. It's just one way. I was reading the other day and I came across a story about a, a guy um, named Yoshiyuki Moriaka. Yoshiyuki Moriaka. And he lives in Japan in Tokyo, and he had this bookstore he was running. He noticed that whenever they launched a brand new book, everybody would come to the bookstore and buy the same book and then go away. Other times, people would wander in and, you know, and wander out and kind of look at all the shelves and all the titles and be a little bit overwhelmed, you know, which do I read, what do I choose? So he came up with this anti-Amazon minimalist idea. He decided to open up a brand new bookstore in the most uh, fashionable mall in Tokyo. And I'm going to show you a picture of the inside of his bookstore. As you notice, there are not a lot of books there. Here's what he does. Every six days, he changes out the same books. He'll put this, the same book of, in, his, in his little bookstore. Then he'll, every six days, take it all out and then put a whole other book and copies of that book in there. So that when you walk in, you just have basically one book to buy. I mean, you can thumb through all the other books, but it's the same book. <laughs> then he takes it out. Then he introduces another book for six days. And you walk in, and you don't have to look around. There's not a lot of stress. Which one should I decide to buy? You just buy it. And he's got a little phrase that he uses called a open single book. That's his store, a open single book. Walk in, buy an open single book. Walk out. Come back six days later, there's another open single book. We have a single Savior that brings us into relationship with the Father. We have, a simple, we have a single book of Scripture called the Bible that tells us how to live our Christian life. We have a single Spirit of God who lives and dwells in us. We have a single God, one, yet three, yet one, the mystery of the Trinity, right? We have a single faith. 
And there's some people that just can't handle the narrowness of that. And the culture increasingly is antagonistic to it. And so people will say to you, you know, it's okay for you to believe that, but you ought to keep it to yourself. Now please understand, everybody in the culture, even an atheist, is an evangelist. An evangelist is, is simply somebody who tells you about what they think is the right way. And everybody has opinions. How many of you have opinions? How many of you are sitting by someone who has opinions? We're all very opinionated. We preach our opinion all the time. We say it. We draw it. We make movies about it. We sing about it. Our actions prove it. We are always conveying our opinions. So when somebody says to you, you shouldn't go around telling people about your faith and about your one way and your one God, what have they just done? They've just told us what their opinion is, what their, what their news is. So is it right for them to say, I can't say anything, but they can? Can we only say what the culture says should be said? Where's freedom in that, right? We need to be able to speak what we believe is the truth. Knowing that some will reject, but knowing that many are searching and looking. Now, does that mean we should be obnoxious about it? Absolutely not. The other day, Marsh and I were in another part of the country. We were walking through the parking lot. We came across this van, and this van had scripture written all over it. It had artwork all over it, and it was really, to me, offensive. Because it was kind of like saying, turn or burn. It was all scripture about God's going to judge. You're going to go to hell if you don't do this. And you know how wicked the world is and on and on. And I thought to myself, my goodness, if I was not a Christian and I saw that, I'd just go, I'd stereotype it. I'd go, yep, there's the church. There's those Christians. I don't want to be part of that. God does not call us to go and condemn and judge the world. God will handle all of that. God says our job is to go and convey his love and his grace. So we go in love to share the truth. We go in service for the opportunity to express the truth. We go on mission so that the truth can be made known. We let the Holy Spirit deal with conviction. We let the Holy Spirit deal with people's hearts and lives. We just simply go and make the truth known. And when we're rejected for doing it even in love, we don't get angry, we don't condemn, we don't judge, we just move on. We just move on. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to become pharisaical. Remember the Pharisees were people who thought they knew the truth. For them, righteousness came from the law. And the way they felt righteous is they would benchmark themselves against other people. I'm better than you, therefore I'm more acceptable to God. And you need to be like me. It's really easy as a Christian who experiences the grace and the love of God to quickly get away from the love and grace of God and get into performance, isn't it? And I begin to think about my relationship with God in terms of how good or how bad I've been. How could I know how good or how bad I've been? I have to compare myself to you. Therefore, I start judging you. Therefore, I start evaluating you. Are you as good as me? Are you good like me? Are you in my tribe? And if you're not, or you reject me, then I feel like I have the right to judge you. And Jesus says, you can't live that way. You can't become like that. In fact, he tells us what our motive ought to be. Look at the text. We're going to spend more time in chapter 10 the next couple weekends. But look at verse 17. 
He sent the 72 out, the 72 come back. It says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, they come back and they're kind of high-fiving. It was amazing. We went out and spoke the truth. People were convicted. We cast out demons. People were set free. And people were healed because of the power that, that we had. Of course, that power was giving, given to them by Jesus. But they're feeling kind of puffed up about it. It was amazing. Look at Jesus' response in verse 18. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know what Jesus is saying there? Don't rejoice over the power. Don't, don't rejoice over, over the, the, the things that you can do in my name. Rejoice over the fact that people's lives have been changed. Rejoice over the fact that marriages are healed. Rejoice over the fact that the lonely now have a sense of companionship, the companionships of fellow believers in the spirit. Rejoice how the truth changes someone. Rejoice that someone's now in the right mind and the right heart. Rejoice that somebody's been made well. He says, no, he, say, he doesn't say that. He, says, he said there, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Well, that's what that means. Because in essence, what he's saying is rejoice in the fact, rejoice in the fact that, that by my grace, I have changed your life. Find your joy in what I've done for you so that you, in turn, will want to see it done for others. Different motive. Be so overwhelmed by my grace in your life, that out of my grace and out of the mercy I've shown you, you just, you're compelled to go and show it to others. See, that's, that's why we go. Because we're so filled with joy because of what God's done for us. That's why we go, because we've experienced this miracle in our life, and we want other people to experience that miracle as well. I can prove it to you. Look, look at what he says in verse 21. It says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy, so here he goes, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, and joy ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Do you know who the wise and learned are? They're the Pharisees. They're the ones who, who are religious, who think they've figured God out by how good they are. Their goodness, their own personal righteousness is their salvation. He says, God, I just thank you that, that you haven't, in essence, wasted your time on them. So I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Who are the little children? The 12, the 72, the woman at the well, the prostitute, the tax collector, the least of these. Do you, mind, do you mind being called a little child? How do you feel about that? Well, I'm an adult, I'm not a little child. I'm a big person, I'm not a little kid. <laughs> but we are the Father's children. And like a child, we are all desperately needy and helpless to save ourselves. So he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He says, out of that, go, go. 
to other little children and show them how much I love them and what I've done for them. That's why that little troubling phrase, he says, go in verse 3, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Lambs, weak little creatures. Lambs, vulnerable. Lambs, oftentimes used for sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God. And that's how we're supposed to go into this world. Being willing to sacrifice our lives if that's what it takes to make known this grace and mercy of God because it's so changed our lives. And yes, there are wolves, oftentimes religious hypocrites, who'll try to stop us and shut us down but because we know there are other children like us, because we are no, because we know there are so many more people looking and searching, we have to go. Even, listen, even to the least of these, we have to go. There's a story written many years ago by Elizabeth Ballard. It's a short story, it's a fictional story, and I, I really love this story. It's about a little boy named Teddy Stallard. Teddy Stallard was an unattractive boy, a fifth grader who smelled kind of musty. His clothes were always wrinkled. And he was very uninterested in school. And when he stared at his teacher, Miss Thompson, it was like he was looking at her, but kind of looking past her. He had kind of a glassy looked to his eyes and he just got the feeling he was somewhere else. He was uninterested in the moment. And when he spoke, he always spoke in kind of a monotone way. One of those kids, hard to like. You know what I mean? But Miss Thompson, she, she said she loved all the kids in her class but the truth was, not really. She had kind of a, a twisted sense of pleasure when she would grade Teddy's test papers and put X's by all the wrong answers. And every once in a while, when he failed the test, with a flare, she'd write an F. <laughs> but deep down inside, she knew better. She knew Teddy's story. She knew from the first grade report that he was a good boy with a lot of potential. But the home situation wasn't very good. She knew from the second grade report that, that he was a good boy. But he's falling behind because his mother was very ill. And there was no help at home. She knew from the third grade report. Third grade report said that Teddy's a, a well-behaved kid, but... It appears that he's a slow learner, and his mother passed away this year. And she knew from the fourth grade report, a report that said that he does behave well, much too serious, falling way behind where he should be, must have a learning disability, and his father shows absolutely no interest in him. Well, around Christmas time, all the kids brought their gifts for the teacher. 
They put it on the desk, and like kids do, they all kind of stood around the desk to watch her open it and just, you hope, see a really surprised and happy look on her face. Amidst all the gifts was, was a gift wrapped in an old brown paper bag with a few strips of scotch tape, and it said on there, to Miss Thompson from Teddy. When she opened it up, out fell a pink rhinestone gaudy-looking bracelet with a couple of stones missing. And the kids began to snicker. She at least had the presence of mind to stick it on right away. And there was also a half a bottle of perfume. She grabbed it and squirted some on each wrist and stuck it out and said, kids, smell this. And they all got the clue and they all went, ooh, ah. After class was over and all the kids left the room, Teddy stayed behind. And Teddy went up to the desk and he stood there and he looked at Miss Thompson and he said, Miss Thompson? Miss Thompson? You sure smell like my mom. And that bracelet, it's really pretty on you. I'm really glad you like my gifts. That night, Miss Thompson went home. She got down on her knees and she asked God to forgive her. The next day, when the kids went to school, they had a brand new teacher. Miss Thompson had a change of heart. She realized that she was God's agent on a mission to spread a message about his love for everybody. And she really began to love her kids, especially the slow kids, the unattractive kids. And something phenomenal happened. Teddy began to catch up to the other students and even surpass a couple of them. He finished fifth grade, and Miss Thompson didn't hear from him for years until finally one day she got a letter, and it said, Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'll be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stallard. Four years later, another note came. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stallard. And four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stallard, M.D., how about that? I want you to be the first to know I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I wanted you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stallard. Miss Thompson went to the wedding and sat where Teddy's mother would have sat. She deserved to sit there. She had done something for Teddy that he could never forget. There are a lot of Teddy Stallards in this world who are just waiting for you and me to go and show and tell them how much God loves them. You know, when I read that story downstairs by myself in our basement, I just cried. 
And I'd start over again, and I'd cry, and I'd start over again, and I cried. And I kept thinking, what is my problem? This is a fictional story, for Pete's sakes. Why am I crying? And then, and I'm sorry to admit this to you, it didn't dawn on me till last night. Why? Because it brought me back to my childhood. Because I'm Teddy Stallard. I remember in my childhood the awkwardness of it. I remember struggling with my grades. And I remember in ninth grade, I went out for track. Husky kid, running track, ran the mile. Whoever talked me into that, I don't know why I did it. And I'll never forget a race. I ran, and I nearly got lapped in the mile. It's a cold spring day. My dad never came to my events. My mom couldn't get there. And I crossed the finish line being made fun of as I crossed the finish line. I was that unattractive, odd misfit of a kid. But there was a man there named Blake Erickson. I think I've told you this story before. And as I came huffing and puffing across the track, he wrapped his arms around me and pulled me in. He said nothing to me. He, he didn't say one word to me. And I would have gone to battle for that man. I don't think he was even a Christian at that point. But he showed me more love than the Christians I knew. And folks... We can do better to a world full of Teddy Stallards who just want to know that God loves them and that they matter. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your grace expressed to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We are your little children whom you have saved and whom you have healed, whom you have invited to go on mission with you to a world that so desperately needs you. Father, all around us at work and at school, in our neighborhoods, or maybe even in our home, are Teddy Stallards. Boys and girls, men and women, oh God, like many of those that your son Jesus reached out to, who just needs somebody to show up and be Jesus to. Father, I pray in a few minutes when we leave this place that we will go with a purpose and with a mission to show God's love so we can speak God's truth. Help us not to go and judge and condemn. And when we're rejected, Lord, help us not to be hateful. But to always be on the search, always on the look for that person who so needs you. Lord, bring a revival to us. Bring an awakening to our hearts. Cause your spirit to fill us and to fill our gatherings to the point, oh God, that people would just be drawn in because the presence of God is so alive in us. The lifestyle of Jesus is being lived out of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.